All right, Ajay, do you think you know your history? Yep. I was born in Pickering, Ontario, and my family is from Guyana, which is the only English-speaking country in South America. I'm telling you, man, I know my stuff. Yeah, that's great, but I'm pretty sure that's geography. I meant your Canadian history. Well, that is a different story. I'll be honest. I don't know as much as I probably should, and I wouldn't even be surprised if I knew more about American history. And I doubt that you're alone. Unfortunately, I feel like most Canadians are that way, and I'm just guilty. But listen, it's clear we both think that's not the best thing. So why is it that we think we should learn more about our history? Well, other than the old, albeit true, lecture about not knowing one's history and being doomed to repeat it, I think it's important that we know where we come from and how we got here to help us understand more about ourselves as individuals and as a nation. You can't really know what Canada and being Canadian is about without at least knowing some of its history. In all fairness, though, people seem to get by just fine without knowing their history. So is there a specific reason why they should know history other than it's good to know? What if people don't know Canadian history because they think it's boring? Listen, I don't think I'm qualified to answer either of those questions, but I know they're worth answering, and I think I know the guy to ask. I know you think I know everything, but... Not you, man. I meant Christopher Moore, the well-respected Canadian historian and prolific author. Yeah, me or him, either or is good. Let's get to some quick facts then, rapid fire style. All right, how old is Canada? As of 2019, 152 years old. What year was Canada's federation? Canada became a country in 1867. Do you know the exact date? Uh, I would assume that'd be Canada Day, so July 1st. And that would be correct. What is the Canadian constitution? Whoa, these questions got real hard real quick. Uh, it's a system of laws and conventions that Canada uses to govern itself. So telling us the rules the government must follow and what it can and cannot do to its citizens. And just for a bit more background, the Constitution of Canada includes the Constitution Act 1867 and the Constitution Act 1982. So what that means is that previously we needed to obtain Britain's approval to change our Constitution, but in 1982 it was repatriated, meaning that this approval was no longer needed and it became truly our own. Chris also mentions the Charlottetown Accord of 1992, which was a failed attempt at obtaining Quebec's consent to the 1982 Constitution Act, which, to this day, is the only province that did not do so. Ah, Quebec. Always keeping things interesting. Which reminds me, the 1970 October Crisis is also mentioned in the interview. For those who may not be familiar, in October 1970, a Quebec separatist group, the FLQ, kidnapped several high-ranking political figures and sadly killed the Quebec Minister of Labour, Pierre Laporte. When challenged by the media on how far he was willing to go in suspending civil liberties to maintain order, the Prime Minister at the time, Pierre Trudeau, famously responded, well, just watch me. This resulted in the only time that the War Measures Act was invoked during peacetime in Canadian history. And, while it was controversial, it was a serious power move by Trudeau. Alright, that rapid fire has me pumped, so let's do this. My name is Ajay. My name is Prakash. And this is the Real Talk Roundtable. Welcome to the Real Talk Roundtable. With us today, we have Christopher Moore. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Christopher Moore is a Canadian history and has been called Canada's most versatile writer of history. He's a Toronto-based writer who has been presenting Canadian history to general audiences through many media for many years. His awards include the Governor General's Award, which he's won twice, the Mr. Christie Award, for which he was, in fact, awarded a box of cookies, actually several, if I remember correctly, um, but has also earned recognition from the Canadian Historical Association and the Ontario Historical Society. Reviewers of his work have called Christopher Moore, and I quote, a historian who always writes with grace and intelligence and is obviously no slave to political correctness. 
For the record, this is just a snippet of Mr. Moore's accomplishments. We actually lost count of how many awards and recognitions we had to cut out, realizing it would have been quicker to just recite the entire history of Canada. Speaking of which, Chris, if I could ask you a, a, a question in Canada here, we're going to start with the standard history question. If a Martian came down to look at Canada today, what would they think was the most important story in Canadian history right now? That the really big story of Canadian history is, and the, and the one that's been going on for at least 500 years, is that collision between all of us people who came from elsewhere and the people who had been here for 10 or 15,000 years before that. Uh, you know, it's an issue in our politics today, uh, the issue of reconciliation, treaties, land right. use, boil water alerts, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. Those things are very much live issues right now in our headlines. And they were just as vital 500 years ago when the first people were bumping up against the east coast of what's now Canada in, in ships and... Are they going to get along? Are they going to fight? Is there a trade right. basis for them to get together? Are they going to settle? Are they going to come? Are they go? How's that all going to work out? So I think that story of 500 years of endless waves of newcomers and originally newcomers from Europe, but now newcomers from everywhere, and yet there still is that indigenous culture. Uh, most parts of the world have had, or many parts of the world have indigenous cultures that have faced that kind of colonialism and, and new people arriving from the rest of the world. But the indigenous people are still here and still strong and their, their aspects of their original cultures are still there very strongly. So I think it's a big story. It's got a million different facets to it. It, it relates to what's going on in the rest of the world and it would relate to Mars and the Earth right. too, in a way. So I think, I think the really huge story of Canadian history particularly right now, is merging the people who've always been here with, with all of us newcomers as we're trying to mix with each other at the same time. So for better or for worse, it seems that history does repeat itself sometimes. Well, it continues, you it know. Continues. Uh, whoever said it, it, uh, it doesn't repeat itself, but it sort of rhymes right. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm kind of getting that you're alluding to this, but let me ask you outright. Let's be frank. Why is it that history is important for people to know? Gradually, I've come to take it for granted that there are people who are interested in history. I wouldn't have had a career if there weren't lots of Canadians who took an interest in Canadian history. So in some ways, I think I've been comfortable with that. Uh, not everyone's interested in history. Uh, and in a way, you know, we, we try to teach history to young people, but in a way, young people are almost the least interested in history. Not all of them, but, but lots of kids... Until you've had a bit of your own time depth, it's hard to appreciate historical time. And lots of people begin to appreciate history as they get older. So I've written for both kids and adults, but I, I've tended to write for people who are interested. But I do think it's a cultural pleasure and a cultural enrichment, you know, in the same way as knowing a bit about astronomy or knowing something about Mozart or knowing something about uh, basketball, uh, whatever. There are lots of fields that it enriches your life to know a little bit about it. So, and, uh, and history is one of those things, I think. Right. So I tend to sell history as something that a, that a cultured and sophisticated person ought to be able to appreciate, rather than you need to know this in order to. Now, I think, I think history can be a guide to how to live and how to understand the present, too. And I certainly uh, have written some things along those lines. But ultimately, history interests me as a, as a cultural challenge and a cultural pleasure. If I could just press you on that for a second, though. You, 
I just want to take you back to the fact that we do teach it in schools, though. And we teach it from the lower grades all the way through high school. Um, I mean, at the point you hit university, it becomes optional. But from the time kids can essentially read, we're teaching them history. Um, so, I mean, there must be some kind of, of universal importance. And I mean, that's true across most, almost every single country you can think of, every culture you can think of. So why do you think that is? Like that crux of the matter. You're right. To take it as a pleasure is one thing. But to keep it as part of your curriculum and as part of the, you know, the raising of your youth and an entire people, why do you think that that piece there is so important? I think it's a good way to introduce, pe- introduce young people to the world they live in. You know, history is full of, of stories at the, at, the, uh, at the very earliest level. They probably don't know whether they're getting a, a historical story or a, or a, a science fictional story or, right. or, a, or, a fa- or a fable, you know. Uh, but gradually, I think history, history becomes a bit of a guide to, to reality, to the world that we live in. Uh, you know, mathematics is important, and uh, science is important, and grammar is important, and all those things are important. But uh, history is one of the fields that uh, looks out from the classroom to the rest of the world and begins to orient kids to the world that they live in. So I think it has that that practical sense, as well as you know, for some kids it's fascinating. It's 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 their favorite class in school and. Telling them those stories is is useful and also interesting. Now, there's no doubt for other kids. Oh my God, history is the one <laughs> the one subject that they look back and they go, oh, the things we had to memorize, and you know, yeah. So, um, I, I think it works for kids on on that on that level. But I accept that there are lots of kids that really aren't very interested in history, and uh, it has to be uh, they they think it is something that's forced on them a little bit, uh, and. That's probably true of adults, too. But I think you're being quite humble about your profession, Chris. I think history is quite important to understanding yourself as a person. I think history is something I use personally to look at the world beyond, but also reflect on myself to say, where did I come from? Who am I? With uh, history, it's something that people can use to say, here's a lens I can look at the world uh, and also understand here's how the world came to be, but here's where I want to take it. I think you argue it's a luxury more than it is a mandatory requirement. I like to argue the opposite. I think it's something that everyone should go through. And the more you know of it, the better you are in life. Yeah. And to that point, why do you, what would you say to people who tell you history is boring? You've mentioned that a lot of people in your profession industry find history interesting. But how would you convince somebody who may not find history interesting and tell them, hey, you're wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, I probably wouldn't. I think, I think I'd, I'd say they just haven't found out why it's interesting yet. But... Um, Again, I'm, Yet. you know, I'm, I'm out on the street corner selling my wares, basically. You know, I'm a, I'm a freelance <laughs> writer. I, I'd rather sell to the people who are interested than the people who are not interested. I, I do sometimes say, I, I find people, uh, people find out what I do, and they say, oh, history, Canadian history. That's so important for the kids. And I think the way to, the way to, really get kids engaged in history is to model to them that we as adults take history seriously. I think if if adults think, well, as long as we ram some history into the kids in grade five and in grade 10, then we can all forget <laughs> about it once we're adults. Uh, the kids are going to know they're getting scammed and they're going to resist it. If if they see a culture where, where people do uh, take an interest in their own culture or where their community came from or where their neighbors came from and, uh, and uh, are 
sensitive to the origins of our politics or our culture or our arts or anything, kids are going to pick up on that. You're not going to have to force kids to study history if they see that, that adults take it seriously. And for adults, I think, uh, again, you're, they're, they're free people. You can't force them, but you have to, you have to sell them on the, on the cultural pleasures and the cultural riches of it, I think. Speaking of culture, one big aspect of it, especially in Western culture, is science fiction. You already alluded to the fact that history can be like it. The question is how? Yeah. Well, I think that uh, there's that, that's that saying actually comes from a novel, not a history book. This is the, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And certainly a lot of the historical projects I've worked on, particularly ones more remote from present times, uh, it's just fascinating to see how many different ways of being human there are. You can, you can find that in the past as well as by traveling to foreign countries. You, know, the, 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 you can go to a completely different culture and just be knocked out by how strange and rich and different their culture and their life is. If, if you go back to, to another time, such as India a thousand years ago, you just do become aware of how strange and rich and different human lives can be and the way that people organize their lives and raise their families and support themselves. And I've always had a kind of casual interest in science fiction that I think is the analogous kind of thing. Uh, science fiction writers imagining completely different worlds. And yeah. it's not that they're saying it's going to be that way. It's just saying here's a whole lot of other ways that you could live on a different planet in a different, uh, in a different universe. And uh, some of the pleasure of history is like that. It's just a way to think about different ways of living and different ways of, of being a human being. And maybe there's, a, maybe there's a lesson in tolerance in that, you know, if you, can, if you can appreciate different cultures, maybe you can appreciate the cultures all around you. And that being said, you also believe that nonfiction writing is more appealing to yourself than fiction writing. I think on your website you say that nonfiction is where you get to argue about what might be true or not true, and you find that interests you more. Yeah, I find... Uh, Historical fiction seems to be having a real vogue these days, and no doubt there are terrific writers writing novels set in the past, and, and I admire them. But I, I think there's a different impulse there. I think that uh, um, there's this concept I understand for fiction calling uh, suspending disbelief, that if a, if a novelist tells a story, if they tell the story so well that it feels true, then it is true. And when you, it seems to me, when you're writing a novel about the past, your job is to make that great story that is so persuasive and so convincing that you, you just do accept it as uh, you, you want to live in this world and you don't ask questions about how do they know that and how do they know this. You just, the world is created for you. And I think what I like about historical study is, is almost the opposite. When you when you study history, actually you never know what's true. And you never, <laughs> you never suspend disbelief. Because when we're studying the past, people say a good history brings the past to life. But actually the past does not come to life. The past is gone. And when you study history or write about history, you're working with what materials remain in the present. Uh, documents most often, maybe movies, photographs, uh, archaeological remains for people who do that kind of research. And you're trying to put the world together from what remains from a, from a vanished world. And 
you're never going to know everything. You're never going to be able to explain everything about uh, about what went on. It's why, uh, you know, uh, who really shot John F. Kennedy, people can argue about that forever if they want to. Or, right. you know, uh, someone's going to come up with a theory that Joan of Arc wasn't really burned at the stake. She escaped and became, you know, so all those kind of theories that are around, you can... And you might you, never actually know. You, you probably might, would just come to the most educated guess. That is pretty... Uh, history is mostly an argument about the past rather than a bag full of facts, I think. Right. And yet you always know that it, it might have been a little different, and if someone finds some new information or thinks about it a little differently, they will write a different history, which will continue to change it. So... Uh, historians continue to rewrite history because there's always new ways to try to understand what was going on and nobody ever gets to the point that okay we've got that subject covered we can lock the lock the door on that one because someone's written the perfect book it, it doesn't happen yeah. so there's no such thing as an objective truth I guess with history I think that's true I think uh, you can't go back and run history again to test whether it was tr worked out that way and you never have all the information. Uh, even if they have the most wonderful archives, you still don't get inside people's heads to know, you know, they may have written down the reason I did this was because, but people don't always tell the truth in what they write right. down. You have, to, you have to do that too. So I think, yeah, history is a search to understand the past rather than to create a completely understandable past. Is it a search that actually progresses forward or is it something that ends up being in circles sometimes? I think it progresses forward in that we do tend to get the history for our own times. We write, new questions arise. I, I began my historical career very much writing daily life, ordinary people, social history, those kind of things. And I love that kind of history. Uh, but. Um, I was still a youngish historian in the 1980s and 1990s when here in Canada we had an enormous constitutional crisis. Uh, we had the Meech Lake Accord and the Charlottetown Accord and was Quebec going to separate and could we, could we bring the Constitution home from Britain and amend it in some way and we had referendums and political struggles and, and as an historian I do tend to try to understand things historically. So I went back to the to the big books that had been written about the making of Canadian, the Canadian Constitution and the Canadian Confederation. And most of those were written in the 1960s, you know, when they, that, the 100th anniversary of Confederation, there was a, every important historian of Canada had to write a, a history of Canada and a, a book about Confederation. And when I was looking at these books, they were fine books. I, I was impressed by the scholarship and the, and the writing ability and lots of things in those 60s histories of the 1860s. But in this post-Meach, post-Charlottetown moment in the, in the early 1990s, they weren't asking any of the questions that we were asking ourselves about what kind of constitution we had in Canada. So I ended up writing a very 1990s book about the 1860s. It was addressing the kind of questions that seemed to be percolating in the air about how we can govern ourselves, what kind of constitution we need, how did they go about doing that the first time. And literally, I had, to, I had to find new answers because I was asking questions based on what I'd experienced in my, in, my, in my recent life in Canada that hadn't been live questions in the 1960s. So I, I think that goes on all the time. Um, the amount of scholarship going on right now about Indigenous history and particularly relations between settlers and colonials 
with the indigenous people is vastly more expanded than we've ever had in the past. It used to be one little chapter at the beginning about who was here before we got here and the real history started. And we've come a long way from there, I think. We've got a long way to go. But, uh, and it's because that's a live issue. We, we have questions about Canadian-Indigenous relations that, that are more pressing today than they were then. So, so history moves forward as we move forward. And, uh, you know, we hope we build on what previous historians have written, but in a sense, they were asking questions we're not so interested in anymore sometimes. So we need new histories just because times have changed. So we've talked a lot about Canadian history and how our perspectives have been influenced by what has happened before us. One thing I personally would say is that a lot of Canadians know more about American history than they do about their own. Do you agree with that statement? You know, we're a small country. We can't we can't help but be influenced by what goes on outside our own borders. And we just have to live with that. And I think, I think many Canadians live with that pretty creatively. Sure, we know an amazing amount of stuff about the United States and some other parts of the world too, but particularly the United States because we get so much of their broadcasting and their music and their writing and their, you know, everything just across our border and so it should be, be crazy to cut ourselves off from that just because we live close to it but um, well, I think we have enough Canadians who are aware of being Canadians and aware that we do things a little bit differently and uh, uh, you know whether it's reading their local newspaper or listening to their national broadcaster or whatever it is or just trying to keep up with Canadian fiction or Canadian movies or Canadian hockey teams, uh, I think, I think we keep our end up. I mean, you know, probably, probably if we were like Australia and we were thousands of kilometers away from everybody else, uh, we'd have a different kind of cultural expression and, uh, uh, and, and so on. But, uh, but we don't. We, we do live next door to the Americans, and that certainly shapes our, uh, our way of being. But a kind of kind of resistance to being American has shaped our being for a long time too, I think. And uh, I don't mean that in a, in a negative, anti-American particular kind of way. It's just uh, just trying to keep our end up here. So, uh, no, I'm not that worried about us being swallowed up by the Americans. It hasn't happened yet. I'm not, I don't think it's about to happen. Uh, but when it comes to things like the Boston Tea Party, or I even know that 1776 is there, yeah. kind of in, in yeah. their independence date. But when it comes to things about Canadian history, all I know is probably like Jack Cartier uh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, 1867. Yeah. Do you think that it's just because that we're a smaller country or that maybe we don't actually promote enough of our own history and take pride in it, that that's why we don't actually know our own history as well? You know, I used to be sympathetic to that. I did the argument, oh, Canadians don't pay enough attention to their own history. And then I... Uh, somewhere and I heard a pretty prominent American historian saying it's terrible how Americans don't know their own history Americans you know they wouldn't know who George Washington was if uh, life depended on it well look at the British now the British really care about their history but uh, they've had a great to do in Britain in recent years that uh, they need to teach more British history in the schools because young British kids don't know the great British story of this and that and I think every country believes that we don't have enough history and some other country is doing it better. I, I'm not sure that's the case. I, uh, 
I've had the experience a couple of times. When I was writing about constitutional history, I was writing 1867, How the Fathers Made a Deal, a book of mine about, about the making of the Canadian Confederation. I, um, I got to do a number of radio phone-in shows, and I remember doing one in, uh, in Calgary with a, a kind of a shock jock kind of radio station, uh, kind of aggressively loudmouth commentators on lots of, common, on lots of their, uh, their programs, and they brought in you know, some guy from Toronto to talk about the Constitution, and they opened up the phone lines. I was amazed at the at the passion and the sophistication and the and the the caring that that just a bunch of people in southern Alberta were were phoning their their local radio phone-in show about and you know they didn't always pronounce the French names right and they weren't exactly <laughs> clear on you know some of the details but they, people phoned in because they cared about their country and they'd done some thinking about it and they'd either read something or they'd heard something on the radio or they'd picked something up in the news that, uh, that had stuck with them and, and they were coming right at me with, with tough, serious questions about how we, how we govern ourselves in Canada. And I remember that when, I, when people tell me that Canadians don't know their history. Nobody can know everything about history, even about, even about local history or Canadian history or whatever. But people have a core of things, I think, of what they think they really need to know to get through their lives or to get through their politics or something. I, I'm, I'm more impressed with what people know when you actually push them for what feels important to them. And people know some things, and nobody knows everything. And uh, uh, I don't know if you know the joke that if you, uh, if you ask Canadians what month the October crisis occurred, 60% of them will say, I don't know, they don't teach enough Canadian history in the schools. And I've almost had that answer put to me. But, you know, versions of that, people are, were indoctrinated to believe that nobody knows Canadian history and they, didn't, and they don't know it because there isn't enough of it rammed into five-year-old or five, grade five kids. I'm not sure I agree with that whole thing. And there are people, people know more than they think they know sometimes. I think, I think that's a fair point. Um, and I'm glad that you kind of characterize it that way with different countries. They all kind of cry blood for the same thing that, you know, we're not teaching enough and people don't know enough about their history. Um, and I suppose that's, that's one part of the conversation. But another is, how do you think, as a historian, how do you think that history should be taught in schools? And if anything, what would you change about the current approach? I really kind of want to take a pass on that, you know, because I'm not a teacher, I'm not a professor. I've done a little bit of teaching. I do go into schools, but I'm not responsible for, you know, sitting with, with 30 or 40 kids every day and working them through a year-long curriculum or something. I've got a lot of respect for teachers and professors and people who try to develop curriculum. It's really a tough job because <laughs> history is basically everything. And to right. try to select what kids should learn in grade five and what they should learn in grade 10. That's a big challenge, trying to do it right. So I, I don't like to second guess them too much. I think there's a lot of history teachers who are doing a lot more than we're giving them credit for. I think it's, it's people who don't work at history as adults who sort of blame the teachers for not ramming history into the schools. Uh, you know, if... Uh, you don't expect people to learn enough science in grade five to run nuclear reactors or, you know, you have to go on learning in all fields. And I think in history, you have to go on learning too. So I, I think history is a tough subject to teach. And um, 
you need, particularly for younger learners, you have to teach it a story. You have to engage the kids with story and drama and personality and that. But you don't want to go too deeply into, gee, it's just a bunch of colorful stories. You want to move in towards the lessons and, uh, and context and such. You know, as kids, you're right. You don't want to just force things down their throat because, you know, that's not the best way to get them engaged. Yeah. Uh, one thing, though, that I don't think any of us are really terribly fond of, or maybe we didn't see the point of it until we got older, were dates. You know, for those who have trouble remembering dates, are they really that important to knowing the history? No. And, and you can look at my name. <laughs> 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 I'm going to go back to all my teachers, they were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you we, say that? Well, is? we've all got a phone now that'll give us every date we ever wanted True to enough. know. And frankly, once you know the date, you still don't know much about you know, what was going on. You still got to think your way through, uh, right. through what... Uh, I guess I think something that, that works, um, and this is something that families can do and parents can do, um, I think if you engage kids with history in their own lives or uh, then what the teachers are trying to do in teaching history works better. Uh, historic sites are extremely popular in Canada. We get really pretty impressive visitor figures to historic sites, to museums, to uh, you know, places where history is commemorated. Anyway, if it's, a, if it's a real place where something happened, people will drive out of their way where they're on a holiday with the kids to, right. to go see what that was. And I think if, if, you, if you make that part of your life in the city is going to the local historic sites or going to, uh, when you're traveling across the country, connecting that to the history of Canada, um, Kids respond to that. You know, you take a bunch of little kids down to Fort York and, you know, half the, half the young adults are kind of, oh, Fort York, it's, you know, it's some old fort down there on the edge of the city. Um, kids get pretty excited about just that landscape because it's a different kind of look and there's big grassy areas they can run around and there's, you know, stone walls and cannons and it's people in colorful. And just, uh, you know, introduce them just to the physical pleasures of running around a uh, landscape like that and... Uh, when they have to learn something about the War of 1812 in their, in their, in their school curriculum, it, it connects to them in a certain way. Uh, it's, uh, it's part of getting that sort of history as part of a cultured person's inheritance and not just a bunch of facts that you have to memorize in grade 10. Now, Chris, I'm going to challenge you because you're quite sympathetic to people who don't know Canadian history. I'm going to ask you to put your sales hat on, and how would you get people interested in Canadian history? What would you say to someone who says that Canadians don't know enough about their history or don't care? What's your pitch? Well, as I was saying, the visitor figures for museums and historic sites are pretty good. Uh, novels and histories about Canadian history are do pretty well in the bestseller lists every Christmas pretty well. Uh, uh, you know, our Canadian movie industry struggles, but actually they make quite a few historical movies, uh, one kind or another, and uh, some of them are, are quite popular and successful as far as Canadian movies are. So I think uh, it's pretty easy to, for me to make an argument that actually lots of people find Canadian history interesting. It's not that I have to sell it to most people. There, are, there is lots of interest in Canadian history. Um, if... If you're determined to tell me, someone is determined to say they're not interested in Canadian history, uh, I think they just haven't made the connection, the right connection yet. And it's hard to know what that right connection is. And 
things that come to my mind, gee, you might be interested in this. Well, they might not, someone might not be interested in that. And I can't blame them if they're not. But I think, I think there are ways into history uh, from almost any perspective. And history can frequently put something new on whatever you are interested in. Uh, you don't have to know the history of, I don't know, sports cars in order to be a, you know, a sports car racer if that's your, if that's your passion. But, uh, but maybe knowing something about what people have done in sports car racing a little earlier and why there's a track there that you can go to uh, can enrich your whole experience. I, I tend to think there's an historical angle to most things. Um, and and it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of finding them and, uh, you know, keeping your eyes open and being willing to, uh, to entertain a historical perspective. For someone who's actually seen that change, how, we know the internet changes everything, but how has history changed in the digital age? Yeah. Has it changed? Yeah. Enormously. Maybe not enough, but tremendously. I how think. so? Um, well, for one thing, I, I talked to an historian at the University of Waterloo a year or so ago, and he's practicing digital history. And he says, nowadays, if you want to do, well, let's take a really big example. Say you were an American historian and you wanted to write the history of the last presidential election, um, the election of Donald Trump. And you want to, you want to really get into the history of that, uh, of that event. Well, a huge, huge part of the documentation of that is everything that was on Twitter during that election, everything that was on Facebook in that election, all the digital messages and emails that everybody was sending around, all the cell phone chats, Instagram. Imagine trying to collect, imagine trying to archive the whole of Facebook for one year or for one electoral cycle or something. It, it's impossible. Twitter, it's hopeless. You just can't. And yet, he is arguing, not arguing, people are proving you can do it. If you get access to an enormous digital collection like that, you can run algorithms. You can, you can assign keywords and look for, if you design a whole bunch of keywords, and part of the job of the historian is to figure out the right keywords and which ones to put together, you can start to see what issues were trending on Facebook and Twitter. And it's, entire, it's, it's not done by a historian reading somebody's letters to their, to their wife or their, you know, or their something. It's, it's actually running algorithms to scan through, you know, bytes, billions of megabytes of, uh, of data. Now, that's, that, that's a far edge. That's one example. Just the fact that, you know, you can, you can put a few names into Google and follow them up. Uh, you know, Wikipedia will start you onto almost any question in history you want to do. The, the amount that's available at your fingertips. Uh, so we're all we're all adapting, even just our basic techniques of writing history to to that just fire hose of information that pours out of your laptop every time you switch it on. I think you hit the nail on the head there, though, where you're talking about that matter of access. And I think that's kind of where a lot of people's minds go to when we think about history. Mm -hmm. I guess our generation. Um, you know, if you're born in the 90s or after, or even the 80s, like you kind of take it for granted that these things are yeah. readily available. Um, but that access, that access is unprecedented. And the ability to index and search and research yeah. in general has like exponentially increased that, that yeah. ease of ability. Yeah. 
there's two sides to the coin of, of change, right? I think there's risk that comes with it as well. Before I ask you what I'd like to ask you, um, I'm going to be I'm just going to humble myself here and be very honest. I think I throw this word around a lot. I'm not sure I know 100% what it means, so I'd rather hear it from, from you. Um, you know, we hear this term revisionist history, especially, you know, you brought up Trump. There's a lot of mm-hmm. mention of that word. What does that really mean? What does revisionism or revisionist history mean? In a kind of way, it's a fairly innocent thing because there never is a final answer to history. And everybody who writes a new history is writing partly against what was, you know, they have something new to say. And among professional historians, people do occasionally say, well, I have a revisionist view on that. And they really just mean, I don't think that the previous authority, the person who wrote the big book 10 years ago, he had some good ideas, but they missed out this and this right. and this, and I've got something to add. I'm going to revise the the standard version a little bit. Um, that's a fairly innocent and casual, and history kind of works that way by revising itself all the time. We were talking about that earlier. Um, revisionism also, I think, came to mean something a lot more dangerous, where essentially, it, I think it really began with with people who wanted to deny the Holocaust, who decided it would fund to say, no, nobody killed all those Jews, and you know, Hitler really meant well and he's misunderstood or something, um, said what they were doing was historical revision, that they were boldly challenging uh, an imposed authority of the f- true story. And they weren't. It, it was all lies and falsehood, basically. The, there is no case to be made that the gas chambers didn't exist or the Nazis didn't have a plan to kill every Jew and every homosexual and you know, other minorities they could get their hands on. So historical revisionism got a bad name as meaning really a concentrated attempt to deny the truth. And... Uh, that's a problem, and I think there is more historical. There is historical revisionism existing on, of that kind, of the, of the false kind existing on, in lots of fields. Um, it's easier just to deny that some atrocity took place, or, or to say that it, it's been faked or it's been exaggerated, than to, than to deal with the consequences. So, so revisionism, in some ways, it's a kind of innocent process of just, right. just history trying to do it better all the time and it also has become a label for you know really falsifications of history in order to in order to deny something that people don't want to acknowledge uh, actually happened but that's exactly why i ask right is you know not everyone has such altruistic intents um and you know you were talking about gatekeepers which you're right is a, an amazing thing that those barriers have been taken down when it comes to access to knowledge i think that's the the underpinnings of a, a successful society um, and building the next generation is providing access to that knowledge, right? It, it shouldn't matter you know, where you come from, what your background is, how much money you have, none of those things should. But gatekeepers aren't always such a bad thing when it comes to getting out into the world and publishing works. And like you're saying, you know, once revisionism takes that more dangerous route, you kind of wish there were more checks and balances and gatekeepers. So the reason why I asked you this was to understand with the, with the, uh, not just the invention, but I guess the the ubiquity of the internet and that access that everyone has and that leveling of the platform, especially when it comes to social media, and mm-hmm. like you mentioned, Twitter. Is there a risk now with that ubiquity of the internet? Is there a risk of more revisionism in a more sinister sense? Not in the innocent sense that you kind of put together with, with historians, but the fact that anybody can just pick up and say, 
yeah, I don't, I don't believe this has happened without any real academic, you know, being informed by any academic sources or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's that danger? Yeah, I think I do. I, th I think the nature of the internet may be that whoever shouts the loudest or shouts first <laughs> and gets the most sort of people shouting along with them wins in a way, you know? Right. Um, uh, you know, some of these uh, sort of internet mobs that get going where somebody does something that's a little bit uh, maybe disapproved of and suddenly suddenly you're getting, they're getting flooded with, you know, verbal abuse and obscenities and death threats and, uh, you know, their address getting published and let's all, you know, it's a scary thing how how internet mobs can, can pile on in some cases. And, yeah, I think that's, that's I don't think there's a quick answer for it. I'm, I'm not much of a censorship guy. I think that uh, banning forms of communication hasn't worked out very well as a way to deal with news you don't want to hear or news that is even wrong. seems to be wrong or is wrong, yeah. Um, so, yes, it's a problem. Yeah. And I wouldn't be so unfair as to ask you what the solution, the solution is. is. <laughs> yeah. Because that's an ongoing yeah. debate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an ongoing history, in fact. I think we're going to... Uh, you know, I don't, think, I don't think the Internet will destroy the world. We'll, we'll learn to live with it. We'll learn, you know, change will come to it. Uh, um, but lastly, Mr. Moore, I think we'll ask you the question. What does Canadian history need right now, in your own words? I, um, I run a little blog about Canadian history, and I try to kind of follow what's going on, and I am impressed with the way the diversity of Canada is beginning to apply to the diversity of historical writing. We are getting, you know, Sikh historians who don't just write about the Sikh experience, but they somehow that experience uh, affects what they choose to write about, or you know, South Asian Canadians who might be writing about New France, but, uh, you know, they're, they're writing about whatever interests them. We're, we're beginning to see uh, it isn't all old white guys writing history, and that's, I'm sure that's a good thing, uh, particularly in the indigenous field. Um, the issue of appropriation of voice that's been floating around, you know, nobody should try to speak for people of a different culture. There's something to it, and it can also be quite dangerous, and anybody who writes about the past feels a little sensitive about this, because we're all writing about different cultures, but they're dead and they can't speak for themselves. <laughs> but I think there has been a, almost a conscious decision by quite a few white or settler or, you know, Euro-Canadian or whatever we call ourselves, non-Indigenous Canadians, that we need more Indigenous history but we need more of it written by indigenous people. There's been so much written about indigenous people by non-indigenous people that we need to create some space for, for indigenous historians to, to, to have room to find an audience and to write their own version of Canadian history. And, and I, that's starting to happen. There's some terrific indigenous historians uh, writing, writing on a whole range of subjects. And I don't mean that non-Indigenous historians have stopped writing, but I think in a way the, the profession has been trying to make room for, for some Indigenous voices, and that can't be anything other than good. Uh, and whether you're convinced by any particular historian, the fact that you're getting these different voices is, is, is important and is valuable. And, uh, and I see that percolating up in the, in the young people. Well, advocating for diversity and new voices in providing the history of Canada, I think is a great way to end this podcast, especially coming from a very Canadian 
historian. It's a very Canadian thing to do. So we just want to thank you so much, Mr. Moore, for your time and giving us a highlight of not just why history is important, but the power history has on the, our present as well as our future. Oh, I think I'd echo the same sentiment. I mean, I learned something, a few things, actually. Um, <laughs> quite today, a few things. Quite a few things, yeah. Thanks for correcting me. Uh, you're very right. I learned quite a few things, and I think I'll continue to do so, a lot of which is due to, you know, kind of what you've laid out to us in that history is not just reading one book. It's not just reading one page, one fact. Um, there are multiple competing versions often of those same facts written from different perspectives. Um, and I think you really drive the point home when you're saying that, you know, we need that more of that diversity today than ever before. Um, and that should be one of the underpinning principles, not only of history, uh, but I think of, of Canada at large. And that's, that's part of our foundation. So thanks for kind of bringing us, bringing us a little bit through that history telling us why our history is important and also challenging us on the fact that because you know we really were coming here with the mind that you know i don't know if canadians are care as much about the history as they probably should mostly because i think we kind of felt that way like maybe we don't even know as much as we should uh, but you're right like when you, we don't by the way <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't we still don't but i think you even gave us a run for money and, and, and challenging us to think about what we know and realizing that yeah maybe we do know more than we give ourselves credit for we could always learn more than we should but we just want to thank you for taking the time and, and answering those questions well i think you've made me think about some things i hadn't thought about before either so it's uh, it's worked on both sides of the microphone it's been a pleasure talking to you both so it looks like we met the most humble historian ever yeah, I think that's fair to say, given that he invited us into his home to do this interview. He did bring up an interesting thought about social media being used as historical documents. I mean, isn't it crazy that we're living history right now? And that sometime in the future, someone might be using your Instagram posts as evidence of how people lived during that time? Then I will definitely be more careful about what I post online. More careful? I swear you have only like three posts. That you know of. Chris also made a good point about needing to give more credit to educators teaching history in our schools. But we as a country definitely could explore more engaging ways of actually doing it. I can't argue with that. Maybe it's a good thing that our history is less known than other countries, because it speaks to our country's stability, even during times of turmoil. Moore also calls history a cultural pursuit and an intellectual challenge, meaning that we shouldn't take facts at face value and should interpret information with the context of the time. If nothing else, though, I think history adds richness and depth to life. And so I would encourage anyone who thinks it may not be interesting to at least give it a try. You honestly believe people think that deeply about the value of history in their life? Yes, and I'd even argue that most of us do it with the things we love without even realizing. For example, when it comes to sports, most people know something about their favorite player or team, so when they do something significant like win a game against a big rival or win a championship, it means that much more to you because you know the story. Just like when the Raptors won their first championship, this would have been more significant to those who knew the history of the Raptors' journey. Ah, you cheated by using people's love for the Raptors. But that's a fair point. <laughs> All right, time to close out this episode. Don't forget to follow our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. Feel free to share your comments with us. And if there are any future topics you would like us to explore, let us know. And finally, if you liked what we discussed today, feel free to share it with your friends and family. And we can't tell you enough, we really do appreciate your support. Thanks for listening, and we'll hope you'll join us in the next episode of the Real Talk Roundtable. Thank you.